0: Welcome to this week's episode of our Thirsty Podcast. I am Pastor Michael Zarling. And I'm Pastor Nathan Klusmeier. And we're going to be talking today about the Old Testament lesson and the gospel for the third Sunday after Epiphany. But before we get into that, Nathan, I wanted to mention that one of our members came to me last week with the second Sunday after Epiphany because we had told uh, our listeners to go and talk to their pastor about where they thought that the the gospel lesson took place of Jesus calling Philip and Nathaniel to be his disciples. And so my wife thought it was funny, and she said, you said on your podcast to go talk to your pastor and ask the question, so she asked me <laughs> the question. Did anyone ask you? No, no one asked me. So I went to my pastor and your pastor Uh, Professor Brug that we both had at the seminary, who's a member here, and I asked him, where did this take place? And he said a place that neither you or I had mentioned. He said, well, it could have been that John was baptizing in Samaria. So that would have been Hmm. in between, and so it's not such a long distance from Samaria to Capernaum to Galilee in the north where Jesus says in the gospel where he wants to go as opposed to where you and I were talking that Jesus could have been down south in the desert of Judea where I was expecting John to be baptizing. Interesting. Yeah, and yeah. he he could have been moving around. I mean, I don't know if I want to take John Brugge's necessary word for it. I mean, what does he know? I, I would
1: argue he, he's forgotten more <laughs> than you or I will ever know. Yeah,
0: so yeah, we joke about it uh John Brugg is also the general editor of the EHV Bible that we use in our church. And we're collecting uh, baskets for a raffle for our Youth Sunday in a couple of weeks. So I had asked uh, John Brug for several of his books to be put in a basket to raffle off. And I wanted to ask him, could he sign an EHV Bible for us? That way we could au- auction it off as you know, that the author of the Bible had signed it. I'm not going to ask him that question. All right, so getting into the first lesson from Jonah chapter 3, the theme for this this Sunday is uh, from the river to the mountain. And so what that's talking about is from the Jordan River where we see Jesus baptized in the first Sunday after Epiphany to the mountain of Transfiguration. And the theme is committed to a lofty charge. Uh, I don't know about... You, Nathan, I'm not really sold on that theme. I I like this one better. Maybe Christ's call to be follower makers. Yeah, I
1: think I like that one better, too. Yeah.
0: So uh, because Jesus in the gospel is going to call his disciples to be his followers, like we saw last week with Philip and Nathaniel. Now this week, he's calling four of these men to be uh, fishers of men and so to be follower makers. But uh, that's really what he's talking about in Jonah 3. Uh, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to Nineveh, the great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah sent up, set out and went to Nineveh just as the word of the Lord had commanded. Now Nineveh was a great city to God. It required a three-day walk. Jonah walked through the city for a day and he called out 40 more days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown the men of Nineveh believe God they proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least when God saw their actions that they had turned from their evil way God relented from the disaster which he had said he would bring on them and he did not carry it out so the question i have nathan is you know we expect that Jonah is the one who's writing this. And he says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. So, can you describe what the first time was that the word of the Lord had come to Jonah? So, the word of the
1: Lord had initially come to Jonah and had told him to go to Assyria uh, to preach this message of the law to the Assyrian people. Uh, and Jonah, one of the things that I find interesting. Jonah didn't respond to God's call. He didn't say no. He didn't question God's call. He just left. He went and got on a boat and attempted to go in the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. If you think of Nineveh was to the kind of north and east of the land of Israel. Uh, Jonah got on a boat and tried to go to Tarshish, which we think is somewhere in Spain so he went as far west basically to the edge of the
0: world as they knew it at the time and so Assyria then is going to be north of Judea north and and east so like you said it's going to be the opposite direction and then Nineveh is going to be a capital city And he says, go to that great city, and we'll talk in a little bit about the size of the city, and then preach the message that I tell you. And the message would be, uh, I I think, picking up what Jesus' message was in the gospel lesson of repent and believe the good news. And so this is a recommissioning of this prophet because he had gone the wrong way, and now uh, he goes to Nineveh. Why was, and, and in answering these questions, you know, Aaron, even asking these questions, Nathan, I don't want any of our listeners to think I'm a jerk in asking you <laughs> in asking you questions, because uh, I think you always know the answer to them. Sometimes. Sometimes. Uh, when, uh, why is Jonah reluctant to go to Nineveh?
1: So I think there's a couple of things at play in Jonah's mind. Uh the first being that there is, most people think Jonah is only in the book of Jonah. He is also mentioned in, I believe, Second Kings, where he is told to go and preach a message of repentance uh, to one of the kings of Israel. And Jonah has no problem doing that. He has no problem going to his own people and sharing, them, sharing with them God's word. Um, but I think part of the reason he doesn't want to go to Assyria is, I think, Jonah may have had in his mind that God's word, God's salvation, was only for the people of Israel, and he didn't like the fact that God was now sending him to a pagan nation. So I think that was part of it. Uh, the other part of it is the Assyrians at this point were they were enemies. They were one of the main competitors, enemies of um, Israel. Israel sometimes was allied, allied with them, often was opposed to, uh, to them, because Assyria at this time was kind of the rising world power. They were challenging the power of the Egyptians, um, and if you know your Middle Eastern geography, Assyria is over in the Euphrates. And um, oh man, that's not good that I'm blanking on the other river.
0: I'm no good good with geography.
1: That's really bad. I am really embarrassed that I can't remember this off the top of my head. Anyways, it's over in the Tigris. There it is. It's over in that river valley, um, and to get to Egypt, there's two ways you can go. You can either go down and around through where Israel is, or you could cut straight across. The problem with the route straight across, it was all inhospitable, desert. modern-day Um, Saudi Arabia. Even still, people don't generally go through that way because it's such a harsh environment. And so Israel was kind of right in the middle between these two world powers. Um, And one of the things, the Assyrians were known for their absolute brutality. They kind of cultivated... um, I had one history professor that referred to them as the bad boys of the ancient world. That's what people... They wanted people to know them as ruthless and bloodthirsty. Uh, I was teaching the catechism students about Jonah a couple weeks ago and had some of the art the Assyrians made of themselves, and they liked to depict themselves being these fierce warriors that would fight lions hand to hand. That's what they wanted to be known for. Uh, The way some of their kings would write about, about themselves, they would brag about how they had put entire cities to the sword, how those that had opposed them, they would cut off their arms and cut out their tongues. Um, They wanted people to, to fear them. And so it seems like Jonah was saying, really, Lord, those people, you want me to go to those people? And later on in the book of Jonah, what's fascinating is Jonah's whole reason for not wanting to go is he's upset because he knows God is going to forgive them. And Jonah seems to believe, well, those people are not worthy of God's forgiveness. I don't want them to be saved. Therefore, I'm not going to go preach this
0: message to them. Yeah, he's afraid that they're going to be they're going to be repentant, which is what we see in this gospel lesson. And just to build on what you said about Assyria being violent, uh, on my daughter Miriam's recommendation, I had been listening to a podcast called uh, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. And in one of the episodes, he talks about Cyrus of Persia, and but to get to Persia, he has to talk about Assyria, and like you said, that Assyria is going to be ruling by violence and fear, as opposed to when the medo Persian Empire rises, defeats the Assyrians, and the ba- well, the Babylonians took over from the Assyrians, but are very much like the Assyrians in the fear, Cyrus with the Medo-Persians, he's still going to be violent, but that's not the way they're going to rule. Usually what they're going to do is make a contract with people. Dan Carlin makes the example of, say, the Philistines, who are a ocean-going, you know, sailor-type people, that the Persians aren't going to say, all right, we're going to use your ship's if and if not, we're going to burn, burn him down and kill you. No, he says, we're going to pay you for your allegiance. And it's a different way. Now, the Philistines know that if they don't listen, they're going to have the hammer brought down on them. But the idea is they're ruling in a different way. It's more
1: the Assyrians very much seem to rule with an iron fist. Yeah. The Persians, it was more
0: the velvet glove with the iron fist inside <laughs> of it. Yeah. And so verse three, uh, Jonah set out and uh, sent out and went to Nineveh just as the word of the Lord had commanded. So now there is a change of heart in Jonah. So that's where you have to read chapter two, where he is praying in the belly of the fish. And it's a very repentant prayer. So that's the Holy Spirit converting him. Uh, he is repentant. There is a change of heart. That's what we talk about the word repent means. they He changes his way, and now he goes to Nineveh, and it was a great city to God.
1: So before we get to that, so my question for you, uh, going back to the incident where Jonah's on the ship uh, asleep, the great storm comes up, uh, the sailors cast lots and determine that the cause of the storm is Jonah— and Jonah volunteers and says, you know, throw me overboard. What was Jonah's motivation for being thrown overboard?
0: Yeah, I think Jonah's motivation would have been maybe feeling guilt, that he realizes that all of these sailors could have been killed because God is coming after him. Okay, so that's what I had
1: always learned as well. I had read a commentary when I was writing a Bible class uh, for one of our education classes last year on Jonah and came across a commentary where the commentator said that's often been the interpretation the interpretation he suggested was Jonah saying you know honestly i'd rather die than go to Nineveh oh. and say yeah throw me overboard then i actually don't have to <laughs> god can't force me to go if i'm if i'm dead um And so then that leads also into my, you talk about Jonah's repentance there. um, But then the way the book ends, do you think that Jonah repented at the end of the book? Because the end of the book is kind of a cliffhanger. It leaves us
0: with questions. Yeah, I do think he repented because, again, Bible scholars would say Jonah is the one who's writing this and he's writing this because he is repentant. Kind of like the gospel of Mark seems to be uh, Peter's gospel by the hand of Mark, who's got maybe Peter whispering in one ear and the Holy Spirit whispering in the other ear. And so Mark does not show Peter in a very good light because Peter is repentant. He's not afraid to show his sins, his weaknesses. And I think that's where Jonah is in this in this uh, Old Testament prophecy as well.
1: I, I tend to agree with that, um, that Jonah was the author, and the, this was his act of contrition, was confessing uh, his sinful attitude. But just Jonah by itself is a literary masterpiece in the Bible with its use of irony and with the way it ends, where it leaves you asking the question that God asks at the end um, and really forces you to examine your own attitudes that you have about sharing the gospel with others.
0: So then verse 3, it says, Now Nineveh was a great city to God. It required a three-day walk. Uh, Jonah walked through the city for a day. So if you read uh, the people's Bible on Jonah, they talk about why this was a great city to God. Uh, It could be that this was, uh, you know, one of the huge centers for the nation of Assyria. Later on in chapter 4, God says that there are 120,000 people who cannot tell the right hand from the left. So we usually understand that to be children who have not reached the age of discretion from Deuteronomy 1 verse 39. So these are little kids. And then if you do the math, you have 120,000 little kids, and then maybe you add in a couple of other children, two parents. This is going to be you know, at least a half a million inhabitants in Nineveh. Uh, the People's Bible suggests that Nineveh was like uh, New York or London of its day. So huge cities, but cultural centers as well. And then could this be a three-day walk of a circumference? Uh, of 60 miles for Nineveh? That's huge. Or could it be Greater Nineveh? And so you've got uh, you know, Greater Detroit, Greater Chicago, uh, that he mentions in the book, here for Racine, you've lived here for six months now. You know that there's Racine, but when you talk about Racine, which is by the lake, but then we have this weird city called Mount Pleasant that goes like a sea around, uh, the city of Racine, and then we also have other little towns like Elmwood Park and Sturdivant and so forth, and so greater Racine goes from the lake really out to the interstate.
1: And especially in more ancient cities, too, you'd have the major urban center, but then there's no way for them to grow food within the city Uh, Enough to support the people. People might have had their own, you know, small gardens, but you would have had the villages that were around the city that then provided um, food and other goods for the larger city. So that could be what it was, too, is that greater greater area that Jonah was also preaching. One thing, you mentioned Dan Carlin, and I love Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. Um, I think he mentions, and I couldn't find the reference at one point when I was working on this, I believe it's in Xenophon, uh, who is a Greek general that goes later on uh, and fights for the Persians and then has a bunch of adventures as they come back and records it. But at one point, they are camped in the ruins of Nineveh. And that several hundred years after Nineveh was destroyed. And they're, even at that point, so impressed with the ruins, they're
0: convinced that only the gods could have built a city mm. of that size. Yeah. And then one other interpretation is that uh, Nineveh just, it, it means that three days to go through it, that for Jonah to walk up and down the major streets and going into the, the, say, the public parks to be able to call people and preach, that would take three days to do that. You know, Nathan and I, this last week in the cold, we were out canvassing around the, the streets Around our early childhood campus, which is connected to our water of life Racine campus and just walking up and down the steps Being aware of the snow and ice and the snow that covers the ice right and then uh, just putting a flyer on the door You know each of us took an hour to do that and that was like a mile and a half two miles uh, Just going up and down one street. It's going to take a long time so in the people's Bible Uh, The author, uh, Professor Spouty, whom I had in Northwestern College, he suggests that the third one is the strongest interpretation. Either way, this is a huge city. And then uh, he walked through the city for a day, and he called out, 40 more days, and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. So, Nathan, why 40? What's the significance of 40?
1: Throwing another one at me I can't remember 40 40 seems to be A time of testing and judgment Often in the Bible We have the the 40 days and 40 nights With the flood um, Jesus is in the wilderness For 40 days I believe Moses is up on Mount Sinai for 40 yep. 40 days It's usually kind of viewed as It's not like 10 Which is a complete time But I think 40 is more of a
0: Like you said, a time of testing, dealing with temptation, an interesting thing I point out with my eighth grade catechism students when we begin studying Moses is you can break Moses' life into three 40-year periods. Uh, He's 40 when he kills the Egyptian guard and goes off into the desert. 40 years that he's out there as a shepherd for his father-in-law and then God calls him in the burning bush to go back and free his people and then 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. So me
1: really starting my ministry at age 40, I'm just in the first third of my life, right? There you right?
0: go. <laughs> there you go. I like it. Uh, yeah, so 40 days. And then uh, Nineveh is going to be overthrown. Uh, and there, that I, that verb overthrown, there I think of you know the the fire and brimstone that comes down on Sodom and Gomorrah. There, you know, the Hebrew—I'm not sure if it's the same Hebrew verb here, but the idea with Sodom and Gomorrah, it looked like the the city was upside down because the destruction was so total. And then the men of Nineveh believe God. This then is the greatest miracle in the Old Testament.
1: And, you know, you think of someone— If you're going out and preaching as an evangelist and um, a reluctant evangelist, too, to preach a message and to have this kind of result, we would be overjoyed. We would be thanking God, and yet what is Jonah's response um, in chapter 4? You know, see, Lord, this is exactly what I said was going to happen. You're going to forgive everybody. And that's why I didn't want to come here to begin with, but yeah, it's interesting. It's also interesting, I know we skip a couple verses here. But there's that interesting detail in Jonah, too. I think it talks about not only do they all put on sackcloth, they put sackcloth on their animals as well just to show kind of their complete uh, contrition and repentance for their sins. And so, yeah, I, our natural response here would be to thank God and to pray that we, too, would have that kind of effectiveness preaching, preaching the word. And I sometimes think, too, it's difficult to know with Jonah like when he was willingly being a servant or if even while he was preaching the Lord's message, if he was being reluctant. Um, And I kind of think of Paul's words, you know, whether from false motives or good, I rejoice that the word of God is being preached, that um, this is kind of a comfort for those of us who have been trusted with the public proclamation of God's word, that the word is effective in itself, that even even. If we're not doing our best, which I pray every time I get into the pulpit that I do, but even still, I take comfort knowing that God's word is effective and powerful.
0: Yeah, and with that, I had mentioned in last week's sermon uh, with looking at the gospel lesson of the calling of Nathaniel and Philip and Jesus says to Nathaniel, well, you, you think this was great that I read your heart and I saw where you had come from under the fig tree. But you're going to see greater things than that. And then I talked about the great things we've seen in our church of eight adult confirmands, youth adult confirmands, uh, eight of them this last year, nine child baptisms, uh, two adult baptisms. And I said, and Lord willing, we'll see even greater things than that. And then I had texted you earlier this week as I was working on some things that, Lord willing, in two weeks on February 4th, we'll have a baptism of one of our high school students and then seven adult confirmands. Uh, And so we may be able, Lord willing, to exceed those awesome numbers from last year. But people ask me when I recount those numbers, where are these people coming from? I said they're all different. Some of it is uh, people that have been away from God's house of worship for a very long time, and then they want to come back, but they don't want to come back alone. So they bring a boyfriend, a child, a grandchild, and so forth. And so the Holy Spirit is working in them to believe, to repent, and believe the good news. Uh, and and with that. Uh, That'll be my theme for my sermon, again, based on the gospel lesson, which we'll get into a little bit. But the theme is going to be called to call others. That Andrew and Peter, James and John, Jonah, they're like us, were called to faith and now called to call others. And I had a note here, too, because I was, I just finished reading, listening to the book Robinson Crusoe. I don't know if you've ever listened to it or read it. I, I attempted to read it at one point. Okay, I thought it was a really excellent bo- book. I've never read it before. I was surprised at how Christian the book is, in that uh, Robinson Crusoe is stranded on this island, and then he's there. And he ends up being there for twenty eight years, but as he's there, he gets gets there, and he he and- he. Re- he thanks God. He prays to God, thanking him for sparing his life. And then he learns how to do all of this stuff. And then every year on the anniversary of his uh, his being stranded and saved, he fasts. And it makes me think of this text here. He fasts and to thank God as the Ninevites are fasting. And then uh, he saves someone from cannibals. And he becomes my man Friday. And then he works on converting uh, Friday to the Christian gospel. And Friday becomes a Christian too. And then on the 28th year, he is spared. And again, he thanks God through all of this. And it's just a very Christian book. But it tied in here with that, that fasting. Every year, he would go without eating from, from breakfast until, until dinner time.
1: And all of that without a volleyball to keep him company.
0: That's right. Something else I usually bring up when I talk about, when I preach on this text, you know, why was Jonah's uh, message so effective? I, and I bring up, oh, well, maybe it's because he smelled so bad. <laughs> <laughs> because he'd have that dried whale vomit on him. You know, going out and walking the uh, well, you know, 100 of miles or something like that from the coast all the way to Assyria, you know, obviously he's going to take a a bath and so forth, but just trying to bring that viewpoint in, and there I had watched the movie with my daughter Belle, The Martian, where you've got this astronaut who is stranded on a whole planet, not just an island like Robinson Crusoe, but a whole planet by himself, and then when he is finally saved, there's a spoiler to the book and movie, but he's saved, and then his astronaut buddy said, you smell. Well, he hasn't had a bath or a shower for years. And that's kind of what I think of with, with Jonah. But more than that, it's probably not the smell. Is If they had heard anything about Jonah, he was dead and is alive. And just like Robinson Crusoe, dead and alive when he comes back to his family. Just like the uh, James Watney I think that's his first name, but Watney in the Martian, he was dead. They actually thought he was dead. And then, you know, he is found alive. Well, when you're dead and you're alive, there is credence to that message. And that's where Jesus later on, when the Pharisees asked Jesus for a sign, he says, I'm not going to give a sign to this hardened uh, generation, except for one sign, the sign of Jonah, that just as he was as good as dead in the belly of the fish for three days. So the son of man will be as good as dead because he will be dead in the belly of the earth for three days. And now you give credence to Jesus message. Anything on that?
1: I don't think I have anything to add to that.
0: (laughs) So then like you had brought up, uh, Oh, I was going to talk about the sackcloth. So I was explaining to Nathan what we do. We've done an epiphany since I've been here now, water of life with, with ashes, with Ash Wednesday. So I thought it was always weird growing up that we celebrated Ash Wednesday. My family would always go to church on Ash Wednesday, but it wasn't always an Ashless Ash Wednesday.
1: Yeah. We never had ashes either.
0: Yeah. So I wondered why that is. And you know, the thing is, is hey, we have Ash Wednesday for repentance but we don't even use the symbol of ashes because that's what the Roman Catholics do. And I think that's silly. So what we've done for years here is we have one of our members that generously makes a sackcloth, so a burlap banner, and then at the beginning of our Ash Wednesday service, we have people come up and then they dip their finger in a bowl with ashes that I've mixed with oil, just regular vegetable oil, and kind of make a less than a paste. It's more of you know like a soup type thing. And they just dip their finger in, and then they make an ashen cross on the sackcloth banner. They can also put it on their foreheads, but people Lutherans are still kind of uh, nervous about doing that. But the the thing is, is they put this cross, and as little kids and the parents. It's pretty neat that for the forty days of Lent, there's that number again. Our people see 150 little crosses on, you know, ashen crosses on the sackcloth banner to remember this Old Testament symbol of repentance. Uh, And then verse 10, when God saw their actions that they had turned from their evil way, God relented from the disaster which he would bring on them, and he did not carry it out. So this is God's grace. So with that, maybe this, Nathan, is is Jonah's message 40 more days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. Is that law or is that a call to the gospel? Yes. Yeah. Why? That's, that's what I was getting at. We often talk about how
1: the law often does preparation work for the gospel. The law, um, shows us our sin, shows us our need for a savior. Uh, reminds us of our sin the law is not what saves us the gospel is what saves us the message that christ has paid for our sins but the law kind of prepares our hearts shows us that need shows us that we can't save ourselves that we need someone to save us that we can't ever pay that debt ever do enough to make up for the evil that we have done in our lives
0: and you and i talk about this often about what happens when you don't have the law. And you see that in so many sermons, so many churches, that if you don't have the law, making people feel guilty, uh, squirming in their pews, having the feeling the flames of hell looking at their feet, there's no reason for the gospel. No,
1: what you often end up with is, Oh, I'm doing pretty good, yeah. And it becomes more, more moralizing, like, well, this is how I'm going to, You know, live a better life, be a better husband, Um, but there's no real motivation because when we talk about the third use of the law, it's only after we realize our sin, realize our need for our Savior, and then in thankfulness to live our lives according to the law that God has given us as a guide in our lives. Um, But without that law, without understanding the need for a Savior, there's really no proper motivation that comes.
0: Yeah. And again, if you are only listening to your Lutheran pastor, well fantastic. You cherish that. But understand what is out there in what I would call the big box churches that this is they do not have Lutheran preaching of law and gospel, law as a mirror to, to show you your sins and then the gospel to Uh, be the forgiveness for those sins they don't have the law to cut away at the disease that the cancer of sin and then the gospel to be the healing salve they don't have that Uh, they, they are missing all of that what they preach is God loves so God forgives you can live however you want there is no repentance there is no call to action it's all like you said the third use of the law but even our own pastors, our own teachers and so forth, we can be infected with this. Because again, we were, we were talking in our office this week that we have to be very careful so that we aren't just preaching the gospel as morality. And even just preaching about the gospel, we have to preach specific law. Here are the sins and the sins that damn. And then specific gospel, not just The gospel that Jesus loves you, so he came for you, you know, he lived, died, and rose for you. That is the gospel. But applying that specifically to each individual the best you can in a chapel devotion, in a Bible study, in a sermon. And like you said, we quote Luther on this. Luther said to do that and do it well. You have earned a doctor of theology. This is tough stuff. Yeah, and... I've been working through CFW
1: Walther's um, proper distinction between law and gospel, and reading that as a as a new pastor, um, a lot of that convicts me, and he he terrifies you in that book, saying if you if you do this wrong, you're you have the possibility of shipwrecking someone's faith, and sometimes it can terrify you um, because. You want to preach the law. You want people to understand their sinfulness. But at the same time, in preaching your law, you don't want to leave the impression with people that, oh, yep, I did that and that and that, so I'm good to go for this Sunday. Thanks, Pastor. I always like getting a pat on the head and trying to remind people, no, you you can't do anything. You need Jesus there. Yes, the good works you do in your life, God does. Those are pleasing, but only because they've been redeemed by Christ on their own. As Isaiah says, even
0: our most righteous acts are filthy rags. And so with that, before we get into the gospel, is, you know, people say this all the time. You know, Pastor, you should preach shorter sermons. I, you know, you and I tease each other about that. But it's tough because people don't know their Bible stories. And so you want to give background on Jonah or background on the gospel lesson with the calling of the disciples. And then you've got to convict with the third use of the law. Then the pastor needs to give specific gospel, to give forgiveness for the wounds he's just created, to give that salve, and then to give the third use of the law, now based on this, now this is how God wants you to live. That takes a lot of time, and to try and squeeze that in, uh, you know, in a very short amount of time, that's difficult. And to convict In a way that's both relevant to
1: people and that remains true to the text that you're preaching on, that you're not just bringing in generic, you know, statements, um, do this, don't do that.
0: And or this is a real test, too, is preaching about the sins out there outside the church, because that's easy to do because people can see what's going on out there. But to convict people of the sins that's in their hearts. And the
1: danger with preaching about all the bad things out there, you run into that, you know, what Jesus talks about with the Pharisee and the tax collector. Lord God, I, I thank you I'm not like those yep. those terrible those terrible people out there. Uh which you see you do we see that attitude kinda getting back to the text here with Jonah, that well, I don't want to preach those people. They're so bad they don't deserve the God or they don't deserve God's love and maybe a little bit of him ignoring um You know, the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom where Jonah was from, was definitely not known for its God-pleasing lifestyles. Um, I've been going through, I just finished teaching the 8th grade catechism uh, course that we use uh, with the Bible history kind of review, and had up one of the slides I used had a table of the good and bad kings of Israel and Judah. There were no good God-pleasing kings of Israel. They were all evil. They all promoted the worship of false gods.
0: All right, let's get into the gospel. So if you want to read that, Nathan, from Mark chapter 1, beginning with verse 14.
1: After John was put in prison, Jesus went to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. The time is fulfilled, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the gospel. As Jesus was going along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, since they were fishermen. Jesus said to them, Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat mending the nets. Immediately Jesus called them. They left their father Zebedee in the
0: boat with the hired servants and followed him. So with this, uh, so John is put in prison by Herod for preaching and uh, preaching against Herod. And then uh, Mark writes down what Jesus is preaching. The kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the gospel. Now, I don't think that's the only thing that he said. Just like, you know, people, critics would say, well, Jonah didn't just say 40 more days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. I think those are the themes of their message. And it's also very interesting how close
1: that is to the message that John had been preaching as well.
0: Right. Yeah, and then with that, repent and believe the gospel. So Nathan's going to be Uh, Helping me for the first time then with the ashes on Ash Wednesday And when what we do is we'll hold the banner with one hand Hold the bowl of ashes with the other and then as people dip their finger into the bowl of ashes Then we are saying to them repent and believe the good news believe the gospel. What does that message mean, Nathan?
1: When we talk about repentance. It's that turning away from sin and turning to God. And we have to sometimes be careful that we don't give the impression that our salvation is based on whether or not we repent. Because I think it's very easy to get that misconception that, well, I haven't repented, therefore I'm not saved. Um, It's that constant struggle in our lives that we want to turn away from sin and follow after jesus faith is created in belief in the gospel message that jesus as the true son of god and true man lived a perfect life and offered that life as a sacrifice on the cross it's faith in christ uh, that we now believe as that faith grows in our hearts it creates a desire in us to repent to turn away from sin and to turn to trust in christ But we just have to be careful that we don't give the impression that our salvation is now based on what we do. That if we don't confess all of our sins, well, we don't have saving faith. That if we don't repent of everything, that if we fall back into sin, we don't have saving faith. No, our faith is in Christ. And then that faith creates
0: that struggle between the new man and the old man. And then since I'm going to be preaching on this text, uh, like I said, I've gotten into this stage in my preaching style of just trying to tell stories. So I want to tell this story again, because when you look at this text, it seems like Jesus has just met these four men and say, says, follow me, and then get up and leave. And to give background on that, I'll talk about how Andrew and John had gone out to the desert to see this new preacher They just seemed to Pop up out there in that desert, who seemed much like the Old Testament prophet Elijah, and he's preaching a message of repentance and believing the gospel and baptizing people. And then they become John's disciples. And then one day this guy walks by, John points to him and says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So they go and they follow Jesus. And then They're so excited, they leave Jesus, and they go and run and tell their brothers. Andrew tells Peter, John tells James, and then Jesus calls them. And that's where we kind of leave it. And then the gospel writer, John, uh, he gives us some of the intervening uh, details between the baptism and temptation of Jesus. And then jesus calls his first disciples he travels north to galilee he turns water into wine he returns to jerusalem for the passover he cleanses the temple he talks with nicodemus he works the judean countryside he travels through samaria that's all john chapters one and four and then we get to mark and mark fast forwards just to john's arrest so all of those things are going on in between and now so these disciples, they know Jesus pretty well. They've been with Jesus. They've been uh, there at the wedding in Cana and so forth. And now he's calling them to follow him. Uh, to, I would say then to follow him, to go for three years of seminary training, to go from fishers to fishers of men. Uh, then to, They've been followers, but now to be those who are making followers. If you want to add anything to that. Nope. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but that's that's the key. That's where I'm going to be talking about it. And uh, the way I'm going to be approaching this sermon is uh, using this sermon as a call to action for our people to support the public ministry. Uh, that we know that we are. People say we have a shortage of pastors. Uh we were just at our pastor's conference on Monday. We were, we were hosting it at our Caledonia campus. And our district president had got up and talked about this, that we really don't have a shortage of pastors. What it is is we have the same amount of pastors, almost exactly as we did uh, in the 1990s at the height of the wells as for membership. Back then we had 400-some thousand, and now we're like 80,000 members less but we have the same amount of pastors but what's happened in those intervening years is we've um, had more congregations now we have a growth in our grade schools and high schools and other supporting ministries that are uh, taking pastors and rightfully so and so now we just don't have a lot of pastors and then for all of these extra ministries and he said in his report 11% 11% of pastors are accepting calls. The guys just aren't moving around. And then in addition to that, that I look at the call list every week and I, it, it deeply saddens me that every week there are more and more of our Wells teachers who have resigned from the ministry for whatever reason, whether it's immediately or the end of the school year. And so we need more pastors, and teachers, more young people training. And so I want to use this sermon as an encouragement to train up our young people. But even uh, in talking with one of our members who works at Synod Office uh, for the Christian education part, and he creates call lists for congregations, for, for teachers, he said to me too, Pastor, we can't... Uh, have all the teachers we need in our grade schools and high schools just by young people going to Martin Luther College. We also need people who are maybe teachers uh, in the public school setting or somewhere else or people who have degrees in something else and they realize, you know, kind of like you did, Nathan, hey, I could be a teacher. And then to go back and become a teacher, we need more and more of those people.
1: And I think we're we're recognizing too, and I know Synod is making, making changes in the training program to help facilitate and make it easier um, for people who are older and want to change vocation and serve and serve God to make that easier uh, to bring them through the process because not everyone later in life can go and drop what they're doing and go up to New Ulm for five years to get a degree while they might have significant amount of experience in a different field that they would a- be able to teach and to streamline that process. And I know that's what's being being worked on. And I know there's plans and development, too, on the pastoral side. Um, within my cl- graduating class, there were, well, there were really four of us that were kind of second career uh Students. One of one of my classmates had taken. He had taken a significant amount of time off. But there were there were three of us who we had worked in other careers and then decided that we really felt our gifts could be best used serving God in His church um, and to work with older older men uh, to help them go through the seminary process to help um, make other fishers
0: of men. Yeah, and then. To think about supporting your current pastors and teachers. I think sometimes, at least I've seen in my ministry, that uh, pastors can, you know, everyone can seem to like them. Now, there are those that have gotten upset with me and left the church for whatever reason, usually pretty silly. But for the most part, everyone supports the pastor. But it's not so much that way with the teachers. Parents can be very protective of their children, which is good. But they often forget that their children are little sinners. Their children are liars. That's what I tell the kids when I teach catechism class. I just tell them, all right, when if there's any kind of difficulty, uh, us understand when I meet with your parents, if they have a question for me, if they question anything I've done or said or grades or whatever, I will tell them... Uh, do you, you do understand that your child is a sinner. Your child will lie to you. Your child will not always tell you the full truth. They go, Oh, what? Yeah. And I'll tell the kids this. And, uh, and, but parents don't always realize that. And teachers aren't always proactive with that. And so they just get beat up by the, by the parents. And I would encourage people don't Do that. Don't do that with your called workers. Don't let other people do that. Support your called workers. It is a tough ministry. I always tell members too, the ministry can be very lonely. And why it's lonely is a lot of times people will tell me and other pastors, other teachers things they can't, they don't want others to know. And that's great. But Pastors can't tell that to other people. They can't go and talk to other members about things because you're not going to break the Eighth Commandment. And so it can be very lonely. You can be friendly with your people in your church, but you can't be really close friends. And so pa- that's why pastors and teachers have to get together with other people. Uh, something else I'll point out in the sermon, uh, you know, called to call others is baptism. That's where God calls us. One of the things I remember from a professor in the seminary, I won't say this in my sermon, the only thing I remember from his class is he was super boring. <laughs> uh, but this one thing has stuck with me all these years because we were close to graduating and being assigned. He said, what gives you the qualifications to be a pastor is not that call document that you'll be hanging on your wall it's that baptismal document your baptismal certificate Lord willing you'll have on your wall because that's the call to faith and from that now because you've been called to faith you can be then called to call others so that was the only thing I picked up in this class but it was very poignant and and that's we both have our uh, we both have our degrees on the wall I remind Nathan that my degree is bigger than his degree
1: uh, yeah but but mine's got higher quality Latin verbiage on it. Yeah,
0: and you probably have a higher grade on there, too. <laughs> that,
1: that, that's, that's what I was implying. Yeah, yeah. Mine much, is like... Uh, much, much, much
0: higher. Yes. Well, what is yours? Mine, mine says like bene, which is good. I always say, yeah, good enough. Get them out of here. I believe mine is summa cum laude. Oh, my goodness. Or maybe what?
1: it's magna. It might. It, I think summa is the highest praise. I'm, I'm whatever. I'm one below that.
0: Okay. So. Well, so you are... I always tell people that you are the smarter of the two pastors, and our degrees uh, <laughs> our degrees demonstrate it, so I'm just compensating with a bigger degree uh,
1: i I also have more more degrees than you because <laughs> i I have that a, associates of Applied Science and culinary Arts, too.
0: Yes. well, <laughs> someone asked the other day uh, one of our aides had asked, "Well, come over to Nathan's desk. And he was disappointed he wasn't there <laughs> and then said, Pastor Zarn, can you help? I go, oh, great. And it was something to do with uh, the lights weren't working. And, and I said to her, I said, just so you know, I'm good at preaching. And that's about it. Uh, Pastor Klusmeyer is basically good at everything else. Not saying you're not good at preaching, but you have all the other qualifications I don't have. Well, no, you, you also are
1: better with technology as uh, was demonstrated last night when I had someone ask me for, oh, can you send me the link to your podcast? I'm like, I, I, I have no idea how to do this. Yeah,
0: so I sent it to him, and I, told, I actually told this story to my wife this morning. I said, I was very helpful to Nathan last night. She says, good. And, and then she was, and then what? I said, well, then I texted, I am happy to help you, just like I help all the other older members in our church that can't figure out podcasts. Well, that's what I say. You, you are the young hip pastor
1: yeah. in the congregation. I mean, even today, you're, you're there in, in your, your flannel and
0: your jeans. and That's more of my, my lumberjack. Hipster. Yeah. I was going to say hipster. It's more because I'm biking out in the snow, so I want to wear this stuff. But with this, too, I don't know if I'll get to this point in the sermon, but this is part of what I've, I've been thinking about is you know, you, you, a midlife crisis is a, is a real thing. You know, I didn't think of this until I was getting close to 50, but when the ministry gets tough, because the ministry is hard, you think, do I want to do this for another 15, 20 years? Should I go look at doing something else? By God's grace, I don't know how to do anything else. (laughs) And uh, so I couldn't do anything. I guess I could, but I'd be starting at ground level. Other guys like you and other pastors, teachers could do other things. But again, by God's grace, whenever I think that way, I think of God puts something in front of me. Maybe it's an evangelism visit. Maybe it's a, a Bible study with a new prospect. Maybe it's helping someone with a, a counseling situation. And then I come home and I tell my wife, I, maybe I'm actually getting good at this. After twenty-seven years in the ministry, I'm figuring this out, and and that's again not a pat on the back, but just saying, God, uh, He just like Jesus does with these disciples over three years. You know, you and I had four years of college, four years at the seminary. Now you a half a year in the ministry, me twenty-seven years in the ministry. And we're learning all the time to be able to apply to do things differently and better than we did the last time we had this issue.
1: And I think that's just one of the amazing, the amazing things with studying God's Word. Um, and it's something I'm still working on as a pastor, more for my personal growth getting in Scripture, is you can know the Bible backwards and forwards, and still yet every time you open up, and read it there's something new or the word hits you in a new way or you see how it applies now at this point in your life and just how rich and living the word of God is and how it humbles you that even after studying it for years you still don't know it well and you're constantly learning um, and wanting to share that knowledge with others.
0: And then talking about specific law in this text because you kind of have to bring it in there isn't, I don't think, really any specific law uh, here. And so what I'll be talking about, because I have to write my sermon this afternoon, is this: that support of the ministry, support of our ministry, uh, ministers, where we can badger them. We can take their words and actions in the worst possible way, where we are not supporting our teachers in the classroom, where we are not... Supporting the ministry of our church uh, and then knowing that budgets, always, Lord willing, are including uh, gifts outside of our church. So like for us, it's support of our grade school. Uh, It is support, and that's about, you know, a hundred and some thousand dollars. It is a percentage to go to Shoreline Lutheran High School. It is a percentage to Wisconsin Lutheran School in your mean Wisconsin uh, Synod. And you'll see that in your church budget as CMO, Congregational Mission Offering. And that, that CMO, that goes to uh, support all of the, the people that we have in Senate office. You have those that are working for Home missions, world missions. I serve on the district mission board. Those monies then are used by the board for a mission, my mission board to start new missions, restart missions, do enhancements. Those are congregations that want to do some new outreach for the next three years. Uh, it is support of our prep schools, it is support of uh, Martin Luther College for training for pastors and teachers, uh, going to the seminary for uh, training of pastors. There's a lot of money that is needed for these things. And oftentimes we don't think about it. We are apathetic toward it, or we're even resistant toward uh, opening up our wallets and our purses and our bank accounts to support this ministry.
1: Yeah, I think that's one way you can get on the law, kind of with the the call that Jesus says there, that, that come follow me and dropping everything and going to the Lord. And I think you have to be careful that you don't, Give the implication, and I think sometimes we've done this in promoting the called ministry that that's somehow better than people's other vocations, and not to lay guilt on them that way, but to say, "Where's your priority? Is your priority supporting God's work? Would you be willing to give up everything to support God's work, or are you more concerned about whatever you know, whatever it is in your?" your life, supporting your needs instead of putting God's needs first. And that idea of stewardship, um, that's kind of in this that the disciples were willing to leave everything and follow Jesus, leave their livelihood, um, for a time. And again, not saying that everyone needs to give up absolutely everything they have and follow Jesus. Um, there's some that are called to that, but not all are called to that. But again, where, where are your priorities? Are you giving your first fruits to God, or is it reluctantly whatever you happen to have left over after getting all the things that you want in your life, you give God the remainder?
0: And so then, because we don't want to leave this podcast with the law, uh, because again, this is what you do as Lutheran people, uh, as Lutherans. And I want you to, to listen closely to your pastor's sermons. Listen to the law, gospel, or for the law, for the gospel, for the third use of the law. So here's the the gospel then is Jesus says, repent, believe the good news. Uh, the good news here, specific gospel is Jesus did give up everything. Where you and I are reluctant to do this, Jesus didn't. We don't look at the disciples necessarily as the example. We look at Jesus as the example, but more than that, as a substitute. He gave up everything, the glory of heaven, to come down to earth, that he did this ministry for us. He gave of himself, he gave himself literally on that cross. And then uh, also uh, with that, I'm trying to read my notes here, uh, what he, he does For us is he calls us to faith. He calls us to faith in our baptism. He calls us then to to serve him, uh, that we are we are called to be followers, so that we can then create more followers. There, thinking of how God very easily could just said, you know what? This is the way I'm going to make followers. I'm just going to tap people on the shoulder. Now they are my disciples. He could have said, I'm going to send the angels and then they're going to be, uh, be the ones that are going to call people of faith. But he doesn't do that. He uses flawed people like you and me, flawed people who are sinners whom he has made saints. He uses flawed people like pastors and teachers and that he then uses in the classrooms and the pulpits in order to give this forgiveness of sins, to splash the water of baptism on people's heads, to mm-hmm. place the forgiveness that is in Christ's body and blood onto their lips. He uses us in this ministry when he didn't have to.
1: Yeah, I always think of, you know, from Paul, you know, talking about the, the jars of clay, um, that we are, we are simple, humble Vessels carrying that precious water of God's word, and it—it's not—it's not the vessel in that analogy. That's the important thing. It's what it—it's what it contains. And one of the things I take comfort is even if that, like me, visioning myself as a old, cracked, dirty pot, but carrying that pure message of the gospel, uh, and knowing
0: that that is what is in fact fe- effective. That's what's important. So wrap it up here. Uh, this is Pastor Michael Zarling with Pastor Nathan Klusmeyer from Water of Life in Racine. Uh, go to church this Sunday. S- uh, support your pastor by hearing his sermon and then telling him it was a good job. And then uh, also support the ministry with your offerings, whether it's you know in, a, in an envelope, whether it's online, whatever it is. Support that ministry. So Support the ministry. The young people in your congregation who want to become pastors and teachers, keep encouraging them. Support the ministry of our church body. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wants the water of life take it as a gift. You are thirsty, my friends, so drink deeply from the water of life.